Have you ever stopped to contemplate why Jesus was so unpopular with so many different groups in Israel during the first century when he was here on earth? I mean, think about it. Jesus was quite popular with many in the general population of Israel, but virtually no one, no one among the various leadership groups liked him at all. Specifically, I'm referring to the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and scribes and Herodians and Zealots. You have probably run across the names of these groups in your reading of the Gospels, but very few Christians know much about them. Who were these groups, and why didn't they like Jesus? The Pharisees were the religious elite. They made it the one aim of their lives to keep every smallest detail of the scribal law. This was the highest level of religious achievement in Israel. They didn't like Jesus because he didn't acknowledge all of their man-made rules, and he regularly confronted their external religion, which was void of a tender heart toward God and man. They saw Jesus as too liberal. That was the Pharisees. A second group that didn't like Jesus was the Sadducees. They were largely people of wealth and position. During the New Testament times, they controlled the priesthood and the temple. They didn't like Jesus because he was a threat to their positions of control. They saw Jesus as too conservative in his view of Scripture. That was the Sadducees. A third group that didn't like Jesus was the Essenes. The Essenes were the ascetics. They withdrew from society and lived lives of asceticism and celibacy. They didn't like Jesus because he mingled among the people and he attended their feasts and he attended their wedding celebrations. They saw Jesus as too worldly. That was the Essenes. A fourth group that didn't like Jesus was the scribes. They were the copyists of the Old Testament law, and they came to be regarded as the authorities on the Scripture. They were the teachers, the instructors. They didn't like Jesus because he didn't agree with all of their interpretations. They saw Jesus as unsubmissive to the views of the rabbis. That was the scribes. A fifth group that didn't like Jesus was the Herodians. They were the group of people within Israel who believed that the best interests of Judaism lay in cooperation with the Romans, the Roman government. They didn't like Jesus because he wasn't political enough for them. They saw Jesus as too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. That was the Herodians. A sixth group that didn't like Jesus was the Zealots. They were the political revolutionaries. They believed that the only way to overthrow Rome was to fight against them by using guerrilla-type warfare. They didn't like Jesus because he wasn't aggressive enough, or assertive enough, or active enough. They saw Jesus as too passive and too humble and too meek. That was the zealots. 
None of these groups like Jesus. Because he didn't fit into their mold and he didn't act in accordance with how they assumed he should have acted. The bottom line was that he didn't do what they wanted him to do. So Jesus was very unpopular with the leadership groups within first century Israel, but the general population mobbed him because of his power to heal and to deliver from demon possession. With all of this in mind, let's turn together to Mark chapter 3 as we resume our study of Mark's powerful gospel record. Mark chapter 3, and please follow along as I read verses 6 through 12. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Mark tells us, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. This little section of Mark chapter 3 is somewhat of an interlude between two sections of intense controversy in the ministry of Jesus. In the opening verses of this third chapter, Jesus is engaged in a controversy with the Pharisees over the issue of the proper observance of the Sabbath. Jesus did not keep the Sabbath day the way the Pharisees felt he should have kept it. In fact, according to their views and their laws, he broke the Sabbath law by healing a man on the Sabbath day. Jesus told them that they were wrong. And he did so in such a way that they had no argument to stand upon as a defense. That infuriated them. That's why verse 6 says what it does. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The Herodians were the Jews of Israel who threw in their lot with with Rome and opposed the Pharisees on just about every issue imaginable. But this was one issue on which they could agree which shows us just how desperate they were to get rid of Jesus. They both detested Jesus more than they hated each other. They both detested Jesus because he upset the apple cart. The Pharisees detested him because he upset the influence they had over people religiously. And the Herodians detested him because he upset the influence they had over the people politically. So the two groups joined hands in a common cause to destroy Jesus. 
That's what happens in the early part of this chapter. Then, near the end of the chapter, we will see how the Pharisees ended up committing the unpardonable sin, which is the focus of verses 22 through 30. They accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan, even though they knew it wasn't true. That was their official declaration. They said Jesus was satanic. That was the assessment of Jesus that they portrayed and propagated in Israel. All of that is recorded in verses 22 and following, which is why I said that these verses we just read are somewhat of an interlude between two sections of intense controversy in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was very unpopular with the leadership groups within first century Israel, but he was very popular with the common people who wanted his healing and his delivering power. Jesus wasn't doing what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and scribes and Herodians and zealots wanted him to do, but he was doing what the Father wanted him to do. And those two did not match up. What the Father wanted Jesus to do and what the leadership groups in Israel wanted Jesus to do didn't line up, and they weren't the same. That's what brought about the conflict and the consternation and the opposition. So much so that verse 6 tells us the Pharisees plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. But Mark tells us in verse 7, in response to this, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. So this is exactly what I've been describing. Although the various leadership groups in Israel didn't like Jesus, he was quite popular with many in the general population. Now that doesn't mean that they truly loved him unconditionally. It doesn't mean that they were really surrendered to him. It doesn't mean that their motives were always right in coming to him or following him around, but he was quite popular with many in the general population. The people flocked to him. And one of the reasons why they did was because they were desperate for him to heal their sicknesses and diseases. Sickness and disease and physical malady were rampant in first century Israel. There were sick and afflicted and bedridden people in every village, community, town, city, and region throughout the land of Israel. As you know, there was a very limited understanding of the importance of hygiene to avoid contact with dangerous germs. There was a very limited understanding of the principles of modern medicine. There was a very limited understanding of the principles of modern rehabilitation and physical therapy. As a result, most people just accepted their infirmities and hoped they didn't get worse. But the vast majority did get worse. People died of things that can be treated today with a simple shot or a simple pill. Those who didn't die were often barely able to live and clung to life as if they were hanging by a thread. In addition, there were the sicknesses and diseases and physical conditions that still can't be treated today because of their severity and their complexity. 
Virtually every family had a loved one that was stricken by something from which he or she would probably never recover. If not every family, then certainly every village and every community. Added to this, there was the prevalent problem of demon possession and demon oppression. This is the environment in which Jesus ministered. So he didn't ignore his environment. A major part of his ministry was healing those who were sick and afflicted and bedridden and paralyzed and debilitated and decimated by physical infirmity. Another major aspect of his ministry was delivering people from demon possession. Listen to some of these statements from the gospel accounts that that we could easily pass over if we're doing a reading through the gospels. But, But just let the impact of these these several passages hit you with just how voluminous the healing ministry of Jesus really was. Matthew 4.23 says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Matthew 14.14 says, And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Matthew 15.30 says, Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Matthew 19.2 says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Matthew 21.14 says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple where he was preaching and teaching, and he healed them. Luke 4.40 says, When the sun was setting All those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Luke 6, 17-19 says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. For power went out from him, and he healed them all. Luke 9, 11 says, But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them, and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who had need of healing. I mean, it's all over the place in the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels. Why did Jesus do all of this healing? Several reasons. Number one, he was moved with compassion toward people who were suffering the effects of living in a sin-cursed world, and he relieved their suffering by healing them. One of the passages I read just a moment ago specifically said he was moved with compassion. Jesus hurt to see people hurting. Two, a second reason, he performed all these kinds of miracles as a validation of his claims to be the Messiah. Hebrew scripture said that when the Messiah came, he would cause the blind to see and the the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. So Jesus had to do these things to prove he was the Messiah. Thirdly, he met people's physical needs to point them to their spiritual need of salvation. He often used his healing miracles as an illustration of a far greater, far deeper need, and that is healing spiritually, internally. So all of that was wrapped up in the voluminous healing ministry and deliverance ministry of Jesus. 
He became so known for all of this that people flocked to him from all over the place. The end of this verse, notice the end of verse 7, it says, A great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. Since we don't live in Israel, we might miss the significance of what Mark is trying to say here and in the next verse. Galilee is the northern section of Israel, and it was there that Jesus performed most of his miracles. He based his headquarters in the town of Capernaum, and Matthew tells us that Jesus performed most of his miracles in a a region of three cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. So it's not surprising to read what Mark tells us here, that a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Josephus tells us that Galilee had 204 cities and villages, and close to 3 million people lived in the Galilee region. So there was a large population base in Galilee, and Mark tells us here, many of these people flocked to Jesus. But that's not all. In addition, at the end of this verse, Mark also mentions Judea. Judea was the southern province of Israel, just as Galilee was the northern province. In between the two was Samaria. Judea also had many cities and villages. So there were many people to draw from, to add to this crowd of multitudes that followed Jesus. But Mark mentions more specifics in the next verse. Look at verse 8. He says, and not only Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. The first specific geographical location mentioned here in verse 8 is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is down in the southern part of Israel, in the region of Judea. As you know, Jerusalem was the capital the religious capital, the political capital. As we saw in the introduction to this message, most of the religious leaders didn't like Jesus and were threatened by him. They had no interest in him. But this verse informs us that many of the people of the city were interested in Jesus. So Jesus had followers from the city of Jerusalem, though the vast majority were not from among the religious leaders and teachers. Next, Mark mentions Idumea. Interestingly, he is the only New Testament writer to mention this region. The only one. This was the area southeast of Judea, and it was populated with Edomites, who were originally the descendants of Esau. The next area that Mark mentions is the region beyond the Jordan. Now, when we read that, it sounds pretty general, but any first century reader would have understood where Mark was uh, re- describing or to what area he was referring. That is referring to the east side of the, the Jordan River down in the southern part of Israel. That area was commonly called Perea. On the east side of the Jordan River up in the north was the Decapolis. So this phrase is telling us that the popularity of Jesus reached the east side of the Jordan River in the south as well. And then Mark mentions Tyre and Sidon. Again, most probably don't know where those are located, so we miss the significance. Tyre and Sidon were way up north, farther north than Galilee, out on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. 
They were the two prominent Phoenician cities, and they were often mentioned to represent all of Phoenicia. So it is obvious that Mark is trying to tell us that people all over the place, from north to south to east and west, came to catch a glimpse of Jesus or to hear what he had to say or to see what he was doing. The popularity of Jesus knew no boundary. It knew no geographical boundary, no ethnic boundary, no religious boundary. But let me hasten to add one very important thought. Jesus was very popular, but not necessarily obeyed. What I mean is, these great multitudes that Mark refers to were mixed multitudes. All you have to do is read through the gospel accounts to see that. Some of the people in these multitudes genuinely loved Jesus. They genuinely believed in him as their Savior and King. They worshiped him. They adored him. They were submitted to him. But many others in these multitudes were interested in Jesus only because he was a miracle worker. And they thought that they might benefit somehow if they just followed Jesus around. Free food, free health care, who knows what he'll give us. Just follow him around. And Mark will show us this as the gospel account unfolds. He's not implying that all of the people in these multitudes, or even most of the people in these multitudes, genuinely loved Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But he does want us to see that there were huge, massive crowds of people following But to illustrate what I'm saying here about the mixed multitudes, turn over with me to John chapter 6. After Mark is Luke, and then John chapter 6. This this one chapter, this story illustrates the, the very point I'm trying to make here. John chapter 6. In the first 21 verses of this chapter, Jesus performs two miracles to strengthen the faith of his disciples. In verses 1 through 13, he multiplied bread. And in verses 16 through 21, he walked on the Sea of Galilee. Now, only the disciples saw Jesus walk on the water. But a multitude saw him multiply bread. Because a multitude saw Jesus create bread, they began following Jesus around. They were just hanging around with him. Verse 22, we'll pick it up there. John 6, verse 22 On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus." Now, we're told in verse 22 that this is the next day. That means it's the day following the miracle of multiplying bread. On the next day, everybody's looking for Jesus. They're trying to find him. And then when they figure out where he's at, they get in boats and they flock to him. Verse 25, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Notice that as the story unfolds, Jesus doesn't even bother answering this question because he knew their motives. He knew their hearts. This crowd wasn't really interested in Jesus for spiritual reasons. They just wanted someone who would give them all their wants, 
who would meet their felt needs. Like many people today, all they wanted was a utilitarian genie in a bottle that you rub to get your wish. So Jesus, basically ignoring their question, goes to the heart of the problem. Verse 26, Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. The opening words of Jesus' reply are words that call attention to the importance of what he's about to say. Whenever Jesus used these words, truly, truly, verily, verily, most assuredly, you know he felt strongly about what he was about to say. That was the case here in verse 26. Why did Jesus feel so strongly about this? Here's the answer. Because these people were more interested in physical comforts than they were with their eternal destiny. They were more interested in their stomachs than they were with their souls. Like most folks today, they were completely motivated by external, external physical, material issues. As one man put it, they were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. So Jesus addresses that firmly. In verse 27, he says to them, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. This command of Jesus reminds me of what God said in Isaiah 55 too, where we read, Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? That's the issue that Jesus is going after in this verse. Jesus performed, now think about this, Jesus performed this miracle of multiplying bread to point the people to the fact that he is the bread of life who came down from heaven to give salvation to those who will repent and believe, but the people in the multitude totally missed the point. They just thought, free food. That's all they could think about. So that's the issue Jesus goes after in this verse. They were focused on the wrong thing. So by the time you get to the end of the chapter, and we don't have time this morning to just walk all the way through it, but I want you to notice by the time you get to the end, there are only 12 left. Imagine. There are fifteen to 20,000 people in this crowd, and by the time you get to the end of the chapter, there are 12 left. Look at verse 60. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it. It's important to note that the word disciple here in this verse does not mean genuine believer. This Greek word, mathetes, discipled, simply means student, learner. It can be used to refer to a genuine believer, but it can also be used to refer to anyone who's just learning, inquiring, inquisitive. The individuals mentioned in this verse were following Jesus around to learn more about him. They were intrigued with him. They were interested in him as a result of his miracle of multiplying bread, but they had not made a decision to submit to Jesus. They hadn't decided to give him their lives. They were just learners at this point. And frankly, what they were learning, they didn't like as this chapter unfolds. In fact, they began to murmur about the things they were hearing Jesus say. They began to reject what Jesus was saying. They didn't like it. The idea here in this verse isn't so much that Jesus' statements were hard to understand, but that they were difficult to accept. 
The Greek word that is used here is the word skleros, which means rough, hard to touch. What Jesus was saying was rough on them. It was hard on them. They understood what Jesus was saying, but it cut them. It rubbed them the wrong way. They didn't like it. So the problem here isn't really misinterpretation. The problem is rejection. They understood what Jesus was saying, but they weren't willing to accept it. The end of this verse might be better translated, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? These were not genuine believers. You see, the false disciple is attracted to the person of Jesus, but hates his words. The true disciple is attracted to the person of Jesus and receives his words. Let me say that again. Please hear it. The false disciple is attracted, yes, attracted to the person of Jesus, but hates his words. The true disciple is attracted to the person of Jesus and receives his words. So we see the result in verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They were done. They were finished. They had heard enough. Turned around, walked away, never to return, John says. By the way, this same kind of thing still goes on all the time today. There are people in society, there are people in our world who are interested in learning about Jesus until, until something is said that they don't like. And then they bail out. Oh, I, I've lost track of the number of times I've, I've seen this. People who are inquisitive. They're interested in Jesus. Wow, what's this Jesus thing? What's this church stuff and Christianity? I think I'll check into it. And then they start in and then they hear something that Jesus said. Like, did he really mean that? Man, if he really meant that, I'm not, I'm not interested. That's too narrow. That's, that's too hard. It's too harsh. Tragically, that's what happened with lots of the multitudes of people who flocked to Jesus. They were interested for a while. Man, this is a neat guy. Look at, he has compassion on people. He feeds the multitudes. He's a neat guy. And then they hear what he had to say. It's like, we don't like that. We don't agree with that. We don't want that. That's what happened throughout the ministry of Jesus. But Mark, in our text in chapter 3, does want us to see what a great commotion the ministry of Jesus caused throughout this entire region of the world. Now let's go back to that text there in Mark chapter 3. So there were huge crowds that flocked to Jesus throughout his ministry. The crowds were so massive that Mark adds a a fascinating comment in verse 9. Notice what he says. Mark 3 verse 9. So Jesus told his disciples. I'm wondering if you've ever read this verse. I mean, when I was studying this passage, I thought, how many times have I read the Gospel of Mark? I don't ever remember reading this verse. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Isn't that fascinating? We don't usually think of these kinds of issues in the ministry of Jesus. But practically speaking, Jesus understood there were so many people pressing at Jesus, that he found it necessary to make sure that his disciples kept an escape boat handy if he needed it to get away. That's shocking when you stop to think about it. 
Verse 10 tells us, For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. We've all seen pictures of crowds that were out of control. We've seen news clips, pictures on the television, on the internet. And maybe you've been caught in a situation like that. We're in a huge crowd that is out of control. That's what Mark is describing here. Picture hundreds and thousands of people all pressing toward a center point, And that center point was Jesus. They all wanted to touch him. The people were convinced that a touch would heal their affliction, whatever it was. No wonder he had to keep an escape boat handy to get away lest he be crushed. Verse 11 says, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God! There is some irony in this statement. I don't know if Mark intends it or not, but there is some irony because the demons knew Jesus was the Son of God. But it is doubtful that the majority of the people in these crowds had that understanding. The demons knew he was the Son of God. Most of these people didn't. They knew this man was a miracle worker. They knew he was a teacher. He was a rabbi. He dressed like a rabbi. He looked like a rabbi. But they probably didn't understand that he was God in human flesh. The crowds didn't know. The multitudes didn't know. Yet the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. And Jesus wanted to make sure that they did not publicize his identity. That's why Mark adds the next verse, verse 12. He says, but he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Jesus didn't want the demons giving testimony about him being the Son of God. Why? It's a normal question, natural. Why? Why didn't Jesus want the demons saying this? Probably two reasons. One, the more this word got out, the more it fed the fire that was so prevalent in Israel of a Messiah who would overthrow Rome. That's, what not, that's not what Jesus had come to do. That's why he often told people whom he healed, don't tell anyone. Because Jesus understood the dynamic. He knew what would happen. As word got out, hey, this man's the Messiah. This man's the Son of God. More people would be like, oh, great, here's the guy that's going to lead us over Rome. That, that wasn't Jesus' point. That wasn't the focus of his ministry. So he, he, he commanded the demons not to make him known. But there's a second reason why Jesus commanded the demons not to make him known. And that is because that activity is exactly what is so confusing about demons. What I mean is demons confuse people by speaking the truth. This is one of the reasons why some Christians have a hard time seeing through the lies of false religion, even religion under the umbrella of Christianity or Christendom. Because demons, listen to this, beloved, demons love to sprinkle truth in their error. Demons love to speak truth. Jesus understood how confusing that can be. So he sternly warned the demons that they should not make him known. So this is Mark's 
brief description of the growing hatred against Jesus among the Jewish leaders and his growing popularity with the people. Jesus was very popular with the people of the day, but not necessarily obeyed. Some of the the people in these multitudes genuinely loved Jesus. And they genuinely believed in in, in Him as their Savior and Lord. Many others in these multitudes were interested in Jesus only because He was a miracle worker. And they thought that, that somehow they might benefit if they followed Jesus around. That's the scenario, that's the picture that Mark paints for us here, which which presses this question. Which category are you in? Which category would you be in if you had been there? You see, please hear me when I say this. You can admire Jesus, but not be right with him. There have been many people down through the centuries who admired Jesus, but they weren't right with him. There are many people alive today who admire Jesus. They think a lot of him, but they're not right with him. You can admire him, but not be submitted to him. That's how a lot of people in the first century related to Jesus, and it still goes on today. It's not enough to admire him. You need to submit to him to be right with him. Let's bow as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes in the few minutes we have remaining, think about yourself as one of the members of these large crowds that gathered around Jesus. You're here this morning, so you're in a crowd of people. And it's not an exact parallel, but there are some parallels. It's It's a crowd of people who have gathered this morning because there's some interest in Jesus, some admiration. But is that where it stops for you? Are you only interested in Jesus, admire him from a distance just as long as you don't think you have to obey what he says? Which category are you in? Where where do you fit in all of this? You're present here this morning, but that doesn't mean you're right with Jesus. Not at all. Lots and lots of people were around him in the first century, and they weren't right with him. They didn't love him. They had not yielded to him. So we dare not assume that everyone who gathers, everyone who comes together around this common theme on a Sunday morning of Jesus, we dare not assume that all who gather are right with him. So I encourage you to examine your heart. Examine your life and see where you stand with the Lord Jesus. Do you know him as your own Lord and Savior? Do you love him? Do you obey him? Are you yielded to him? That's the real issue. Father, once again, as we have looked into your word, it's just so remarkable. Just Amazing to see these snapshots, these pictures, these portraits that the gospel writers give us of the life and ministry of Jesus. To think that there were so many people around him, pressing toward him, that he actually had to have an escape boat ready in case. It's not something we usually think about. But this was the situation. This was the environment in which 
your son, the Lord Jesus, ministered. And we see, just from our brief time in John 6, as well as many other passages in the Gospels, that all of these huge crowds, that not all of the people in these huge crowds were true followers of the Lord Jesus. Not all of them truly loved him and believed in him and embraced him and submitted to him and obeyed him. So we're certain that the same thing goes on today. In fact, it is virtually certain that it's going on this very morning right here where we are gathered. That there are people here who have some kind of interest in your son, the Lord Jesus, but they don't know and love him and obey him and really follow him. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction, bring enlightenment, bring honesty to the table so that any who are in that category would honestly see where they are at spiritually, where they stand, and they would make things right with the Lord Jesus. That they would yield to him and submit to him and begin to obey him. This is our prayer for all of us, our desire for all of us, as we pray these things together in his matchless name. Amen.